Hi, and welcome to Let's Listen with Kieran McBreen. My name's Andrew Ward, and I'm here with Kieran. Kieran, hi, how are you today? I'm great, Andrew, thank you. This is a really powerful episode, isn't it? We're talking to Dean Arrowsmith, and Dean's been through some hard times in his life, hasn't he? He sure has, Andrew, he sure has. It hasn't been easy. Um, Dean is extremely resilient. Um, he's extremely talented, and I'm, ex- I'm very proud to say that I come from the same place as Dean in Coothill County, Canada in Ireland. He's made it very clear what worked for him and what's still working for him. And again, it's the power of community, the power of communication, the power of teamwork and, and having people around you that are just there for you. And this, this is the common theme, without a doubt, since we started the podcast, is, is, is being able to express yourself to those around you, being able to, able to tell people how you feel, and, and people just being there for you, being present and listening to you. Yeah, Dean has really had to deal with some tragedy in his life. That He talks about suicide, he talks about alcoholism, he talks about losing his unborn child. But then we have this magic moment, don't we, where halfway through the episode, just when Dean is talking about that, we get a special guest appearance from his rainbow baby, Fia. And it, it was just a beautiful moment, wasn't it? It sure was, Andrew. You know, Fia coming into the podcast today was, um, was so fitting you know, it linked perfectly to the story, and and you know, uh, we know you're a perfectionist, and you usually cut that out. But um, I think we got to keep it in this week because it, it's very suited to the story. Yeah, exactly. And just on a slightly different note, just before we get to the show, uh, we've got the book launch coming up. Yes, the book launch is coming up on Friday the twentieth um, of May here in Dubai. So anybody who's here locally, feel free to uh, to drop by. As you know, Andrew, it's been tough. There's been many hoops to jump through to get to this stage. Two years in the making. The book's literally been written for nearly a year now. But um, lots of things had to be sorted in order to get it um, fully out there and certified in this country. So um, we're good to go. And I'm looking forward to close this chapter and to focus on my family and to focus on my two children and to focus on this podcast, of course. And every book comes with a free signature and a photo of the author? If, if wanted, Andrew, if wanted. <laughs> well, this is the book launch and it's at Hill House Brasserie here in Dubai, uh, 6.30 on Friday the 20th of May. Uh, now, as we said at the start, this is quite an emotive issue with Dean. He talks about some very, very serious things that happened in his life. If for any reason this impacts you, please either feel to reach out to us or somebody within your own life. And this is Dean Arrowsmith. Dean, tell us your, your big why. What brings you here with us today? I'm here today because over the last couple of years, I've seen you know a, a need probably for a discussion around mental health um, and particularly around men's mental health. Uh, it's something I've been advocating for probably about five or six years now, but I, I think it's kind of came to the forefront within the last 18 months. So I thought it was a good opportunity to come on and chat to you a little bit about my experiences with mental health and what I'm doing to kind of help other people uh, overcome, overcome or not even overcome, but have a, a, an open discussion about their own mental health. Dean, I follow you on social media and, and you're quite vocal about the challenges you've experienced. For those who don't know, can you, can you give us a, an in-depth um, description of, of what you've been through? If I go as far back, Karen, as when I was in college, or even a little before the back, you know, I, I grew up, I was always, probably until I was a teenager, I was a quiet child, uh, I was a, a mommy's boy, and then I kind of came out of my shell a little bit, I'd be a little bit, when I went to college, I was a little bit more extroverted, you know, and enjoyed the lifestyle in college, and enjoyed trying to kind of find out who I was as a person too, and 
then the kind of the first instance that I had where I, I was kind of like, you know, this is my own mental health suffering. I was involved in a car crash, um, not, a, not a very big car crash, but just, you know, I, I went into the back of another car while I was in college and it, it affected me more than I probably knew at the time. And I ended up having to go to counseling, free counseling through the college. And I only went to maybe one or two counseling sessions. And even then I never would have called it or I never would have said, you know, my mental health was failing. And it was only probably a year ago when I'd done an interview for um for my own mental health organization uh on a podcast that I actually remembered that. That that went out of my mind for ten years. Do you know that I even done that or even longer, almost fifteen years now, that uh that I had those counseling sessions and that was kinda as I reflect now that I'm a little bit older, that was probably the first time in my life I, I, I realized there's something not right here. You know, I I have a problem. I went to get help. Unfortunately it didn't probably have the the effect that I wanted at the time and I think probably for me Kieran, I'm the type of fella that I want to please everybody or I've, I have wanted and I want to keep everybody happy and I hate negative criticism or I hate negative criticism and I find that just people's comments I, I take a lot to heart um, and I've, I've let that negatively affect me and it's it's been something that I'm overcoming and as I'm getting older you kind of realize as well you know people's opinions don't matter you know what matters is your own how, how you feel about yourself and if you know you're a good person you're a good person and you don't need anybody else to tell you that you are or you're, or you're not and then I, I I was fortunate enough to to get a job for, for Dundalk Football Club but I had gone to America for a couple of years coaching soccer and I came back and I was fortunate to get a job working as the kit man for Dundalk Football Club for the first team back in 2010 loved it you know, I was meant to go in for a week. I ended up staying for three years, managed to travel, you know, Europa League qualifiers in Luxembourg and Bulgaria. I'd done my UEFA B license in Ireland and, and had almost like these professional coaches were mentoring me through it. You know, I was I was in there day to day at Dundalk. Ian Foster, who's the, the English under-19 manager, Wayne Hatswell, he's the assistant manager at Walsall in League Two. Those two were massive helps to me, you know, and they were good sounding boards for me and, Absolutely loved my time at Dundalk, and then in two thousand and twelve, when uh, when Ian Ian had left as manager, I became the club promotion officer for the for Dundalk. Which again, you know, my family come from Dundalk. I know I grew up in in the same town as you, but my family, you know, are, are from Dundalk. So that was that was a dream job for me to to be involved in the day to day of a football club. And at that time, they were trying to uh, the owner was trying to sell the club. You know, it had run its course with him, and he was trying to sell on the club. I was in the job, I think, five and a half months. It was six months, actually. It was the week, the Monday after. My brother got married on uh, on a Saturday or Friday. And on the Monday, I got called in. I got told, look, for, for budgetary reasons, we have to let you go, which in, in League of Ireland terms, for anyone listening that doesn't know, this, this is very normal. Like, this isn't... Dundalk's not the first club to go through it. They weren't the last club to go through it. They were lucky just to stay in existence. I don't think it, it, I took that as hard, or I don't think... I let let myself take it as hard as it, as it probably did. You know that that's a devastating. It's a, it's a dream job, and to be let go like that is devastating. But at that moment in time, it was a point, as I say, where the club was almost going out of business to the point where at one point it was within forty eight hours of going out of business. And this is probably where my charitable side started coming through around that time. So I'm after going through this loss of of a dream job, and then. The club is almost going to go, and I didn't want to go down the road of other clubs where they go out of business on a Monday and they they come back a year later with a newly, you know, like 
Cork City FC, Cork City Forest Co-op FC, and you know they changed their name and the, and the reform is another club. And I think there's a famous club in Scotland, but I'm not going to mention those that that done something similar. And I started doing that, and I threw myself into that, and I was probably working harder without getting paid during that time. So I I set up a group called Save Our Club, and from June of 2012 right through to the beginning of January uh, 2013 I was there at the club five six days a week you know I was driving up and down I'd moved back home to to Calvin and driving an hour up every day to to you know just to get actively involved and to stay involved and then the club ended up getting bought by new owners and and it was kind of a fresh regime which ended up being quite a famous regime under Stephen Kenny with a lot of success and I was supposed to go back in as, as Stephen Kenny's kit man. And it was at a point where, again, I was a little bit older at the time, and I kind of said, you know, if I'm going to stay at the club, I want to be getting paid. You know, at certain times when I was there, I was just getting maybe petrol money. I was like, I, I want to get paid. I, I, I don't want to break the bank. I just want to make sure that I'm I'm getting enough that I can earn a living and be independent and maybe move back to Dundalk and, and not be dependent on my parents at, at 20-something years of age. And it just didn't it didn't work out like that for whatever reason. And that was a bitter pill to swallow, you know, because that was I, I lost my job less than a year before that. I had done all this work without getting paid. Just to be told by the club, you know, we're just we don't have those funds. And in hindsight, it's completely understandable that they didn't have it. But at the time you take it very personally because I've done all this this for the club and about a month or so later, it was the first game of the season with Dundalk I went up and I got my photograph taken with the captain because I was sponsoring him for the year I went to another event I didn't even stay for the game which you know hadn't missed a game in three years you know hadn't had been home and away every match for three years pretty much uh, I went to an event had a little bit too much to drink being completely honest and, and decided to drive home to Calvin from, from Carlingford and um, I got a flat tyre drove past the Garda station and they seen the sparks flying they thought there was fireworks going off outside and they pulled me in and I got I, I got in trouble you know which which thankfully I did I mean I called the guard the next the next day he was off duty in the morning when they let me go I called him the next day and I thanked him for either saving my life or saving someone else's life and the reason why I tell that story and I've gone a bit long-winded on that Kieran, but that was the first time in my life that I'd say that weekend if I could have ended my life I would have you know and and it was something that crossed my mind in the aftermath of that night, you know, in the in the immediate aftermath of that night. Uh, I, I just didn't want to be be here anymore. I felt worthless. You know, I felt like the football club that I loved, that I was involved in for three years, they, they didn't want me. I've just done this stupid thing that there's going to be consequences for it. What's the point in living anymore? And, and thankfully, look, thankfully, I've got a very supportive parents that they never once they seen the hurt that I was going through so they never once you know it, it would have been easy for them to have a go at me for what I would the stupidity that I'd done they didn't they made sure I was alright I spoke with my mother about it a couple of weeks ago and she was saying you know that afternoon she made me go out and start lifting logs in and you know keep, get me back involved and slowly you know after a couple of weeks of that after in the aftermath of that I started coming around again and I got rid of my car. I didn't. I didn't lo- actually lose my license for another. I think year, year and a month or something like that. Thirteen months. But I got rid of my car about two weeks after the incident because it's like if I'm if I'm gonna be without it, I'm gonna be without. It. I have to adjust to life. And I think that that probably helped me a little bit. I started walking a lot. You know, walking around forests and things. And that'll be a big probably thing throughout the conversation is how fitness and how just getting out and being active and getting fresh air helped me. But that that was probably my first real. 
the first time that I was very knowledgeable about taking taking my own life and thank thank God I didn't I mean thank God I didn't with the life that I have now and you know everything that I do but that that was probably the moment the probably the lowest moment in my life Thank you Dean and I appreciate that it can't be easy you know coming back into this time um, but it's extremely powerful and it sounds to me that you know the lack of being valued from from Dundalk FC um, was, was very painful for you and you know if, if the people involved knew that you were feeling this way you know is there anything they would have done differently do you think? Maybe I mean I, I feel now that in my mind at the time there was probably a sense of entitlement from my side too you know as I, again as I've gotten a little bit older and a bit mature I think there was probably a little bit of immaturity on my side I don't think there was that in person and that they didn't want to keep me I think it was just it was new ownership they were tightening the belt a little bit and they wanted uh, they wanted me there but they just didn't want to give me give me a full full time wage for it you know which 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 is understandable I mean as I say in, in Irish football all the money or a lot of the money goes towards the playing squad and they can't give you know they don't have that expendable cash I think the conversation could have you know the conversation could have probably been had it was almost like it was my decision but it wasn't my decision you know they had kind of forced me hand to move away and ultimately I probably could have stayed there you know only I just didn't want to do it so as I say, I think it was just probably a little bit of immaturity on my part, you know, that I didn't, that I, I felt, I felt that I should have got more from them, you know. Mm, no, absolutely. And, and it's extremely powerful the way you change your perspective on that. And, and sometimes by taking control and changing perspective, you know, we, we, we learn to accept and to deal with the situations that we find ourselves in. So what happened after that, Dean? So after that, I, I had got a job uh, working in, in a bookmaker's in town. I, I worked there for three years two two and a half three years um and i started coaching again back at, at the local club at Coothill harps um which that's the club that my father is one of the founding members of and at 24 years of age i took over the reserve team the reserve to seniors i actually think kieran you might have came out and done a training session when i was thinking back i think you might have trained a couple of times when you were home that summer with us that was at a time where again i just probably needed that because i was training my friends i was coaching my friends every week I was working in a job that it was great to have it. I developed some more mental health problems down the line working in that job, just working in, in that kind of environment within your local community. But I suppose for me over those two years, two and a half years, it was co coaching my mates was probably something caring that, you know, I've been coaching 16 years. I don't think I've had two years like that. And I brought back the kind of uh, camaraderie that would have been had when dad was coaching you where, you play your game on a Saturday or a Sunday, you go for pints after it, you get food after it in the pub. And that was something that was important to me is I wanted to build that where I think that was kind of, that's kind of lost a little bit in today's game. You know, everything, even at the amateur game, has gone a little bit more professionalised where when I had those reserves, it was lads that our senior team was very, very successful at the time. So there was a group of lads that just weren't getting a look in at, at the senior level. So I said, well, I'm going to take these lads, I'm going to help them have a little bit of belief. I'm going to test myself as a coach because I'm 24. There's lads in the squad that are, you know, in their, in their mid-30s. Um, there's lads that are my age, there's fellas I'm friends with, so I'm going to have to make some tough calls. But we had we had great crack the first year. We finished third from bottom, but we were top of the league up to Christmas. So I, I think I was ready for the, the, the bullet. I was ready to get the door after the, the end of that season. But then the second year, and this was the year again, as I say, after every match, we went out, I bought the lads food, you know, I bought pizzas into the pub every after every game. Uh, and we went unbeaten in the second season and ended up winning the league with a game to spare. 
and we ended up winning that last game as well just to just to finish the season unbeaten and as I said at that moment for me it, again I was only 25 that was just like honestly I, I can't forget it and going back to my charitable side just to say like the highlight of that season wasn't actually winning the league there was one player on the team at the very start of the season was diagnosed with cancer during pre-season we organised a charity match between ourselves and the GAA club that he was involved in to play against each other and raise some money. I think we raised, I think it was €2,000 just to cover his you know, uh, taxi taxi bills up, up and down the hospital. But I had a conversation with him and I said to him, by the end of the season, you're going to play for us. And that last game of the season, so we had the league one, we had the league one, and then that last game of the season, the, I brought him on with a half hour to go and I actually made him captain. So for me... Without you know, you take away all that success. That there is a moment that I'll, as long as I'm coaching, if I if I if I ever got as famous to win a World Cup, I don't think any any moment would actually match that moment of of being able to bring him on. And it's just you know sometimes there's there's special moments happening in games, and there was a big crowd there because we were getting the trophy that night. Um, so to be able to bring him on and make him captain for the last half hours, just it, it's just a special moment, you know. And it's it's something that as a coach, I'm very proud that I was able to do that. That's amazing, Dana. It's it's um, it does sound extremely special. I'm sure all the boys involved really appreciate all the efforts you went to 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 make to create this this whatever it was you created, but it was clearly successful. And would you say that this this led you to further success? This the same origins, the same ethos, the same credentials you were using has has kind of made you feel I want to do more of this, and this is where you find yourself today. Yeah, it was once I got through that and I, I was supposed to actually stay the season after and I'd start pre-season, but then the opportunity, the opportunity's always been in the back of my mind. I went to America in 2009 for six months and it's always always been in the back of my mind. I feel like every year I reapplied to go out to America and I just never never took the plunge. So I wasn't able, as I say, I wasn't able to drive at that time. So uh, I was limited in what I could do work-wise. And then the opportunity came to go back to America in, in late 2015. So I jumped at the chance. Uh, I went out to it's a youth soccer club that I'm currently at now in, in uh, the suburbs of Chicago. I was there um, two, I'm going to say a year and a half. And I became the assistant director of coaching at the club. Again, just, you know, trying to trying to build something. So I was assistant director of coaching for, for about a year. And then our DOC left. So I've been the director of coaching since 2017. And it's been a, it's been a great journey just to see the growth and, and just to try and build something from, you know, something kind of from nothing or something from, from very little. And yeah, long answer to your question is yeah, definitely. I, I've used some of what I learned uh, during that time with Cotill Reserves and in, in what I'm doing now. Wonderful, wonderful. And Dean, you know, the, the, the getting involved with the coaching and, and just doing things, being purposeful, finding your purpose again, clearly supported you in, in that dark place you were in. Then I do understand that um, you've experienced further challenges in your life. Are you comfortable to express these? In 2017, um, I lost an uncle to suicide very, very unexpectedly. I mean, nobody knew that he was he was struggling or anything like that. And I couldn't go home just because my, my visa, I was on a visa extension. If I had have extended again or if I had have went home, I wouldn't have been able to come back out for about six months. Um, I was in a relationship with my now wife and we just didn't, you know, it, it was just going to make everything difficult for me. So I spoke to my parents again and made the decision, you know, there's no point, there's no, no need for me to come home. That was very tough. And again, probably about six months after uh, after he passed away, my, my grandfather passed away as well. While my mother was out here for Thanksgiving, 
about a week before that, I had gone out drinking with all the soccer coaches, the Irish and English coaches would go out, you know, drinking for, um, we'll have a night out, you know, at the end of a season because our seasons are quite, you know, seven days a week. It's quite long. So we'll, we'll all have a get together. And that night I ended up in, in hospital again. I just had I, a little bit over exuberant, maybe you want to say, but I think that was probably a lot of emotion from the previous six months was all kind of catching up on me that night. And I wanted to forget everything and, I I ended up in hospital and and ever since then, thankfully, you know I I I rarely drink now. You know I I fo- I'm focused on my wife, focused on my family, on my job. But that was that was another kind of tough moment for me. It's been tough and and just on it, probably just going around me por- my personal journey during COVID in 2020. My wife and I found out we were having our our first child. We found out it was a girl. You know we were told by doctors everything everything looks good. The baby just looks a little bit small and but everything looks fine we had a name picked out charlie may and then the 20 week scan came up on the 15th of december of 2020 and the doctor or my wife's in because of covid i can't actually go in for the ultrasound so she's in there on her own and to do the ultrasound takes a little bit takes a little bit longer than it should have but we didn't really think anything you know we didn't think anything of it we, she came out and i was allowed to go into the to the meeting with the doctor and the doctor goes, we were waiting in there for about 45 minutes on the doctor to come in and she came in and she's looking through notes. She said, everything looks good, everything looks good. And then she's like, oh, she said, uh, it looks like there's a problem with the, the left ventricle of the baby's heart. She said, don't look it up on Google, whatever you do, but I, I'd advise you to go spe- try to get to a specialist within the next seven days. So we scheduled to see a specialist two days later. We got a fetal, fetal echocardiograms, which is... Uh, you know, they, they checked the, the baby's heart in the, in the womb and she was diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which pretty much in simple terms, she was missing the left left side of her heart. And we were given three options. So one option was we were going to go full term and the baby would have palliative care. One option would be to terminate the pregnancy at that point. And the other option would be to go full term. Hope, hope she lived six, seven days. She was going to need open heart surgery. Hope she survived that. Seven to eight weeks later, she was going to need a second open heart surgery. Hope she survived that. And then at the age of two or three, she was going to need a third open heart surgery. And it's all to, it would all be to prolong her life. It wasn't going to, she might not have a high quality of life. And, and there's probably, there might be people listening to this that have kids with, high, with HLHS, that they're living decent lives, but there's, there's different severities of it. Like we were told, in Charlie's case, it was 0.01% of babies born in the US have what Charlie had. Emily's doctor told us they probably every four years they'll get one case of it in there and they would see thousands of, of babies in that time, you know. So this was on the 17th of December. We, we spoke about it and we looked in to see, you know, I was ready to quit my job at the time, you know, I when the baby came and, and the time came that I would look after. And you make a decision that, I mean, no parent ever wants to make, you know, and we decided we were going to terminate. We said we were told pretty much that the second that Charlie was born, she was going to be in pain. You know, she was going to turn blue literally within within seconds of being born. So we came to the conclusion that for Charlie's sake, not for our sake, for Charlie's sake, we would terminate the pregnancy. We didn't want her to feel any pain. Now, as soon as we made that decision and told Emily's doctor, we were told like, it was the correct call they can't they can't make that for us but they were like this is so severe that she is she's not going to make that for surgery you know she she's going to die um 
so on the 20 I mean Christmas week he couldn't make it up the 21st of December and the 22nd Emily went in for a procedure thankfully I was allowed to attend those even during Covid times but you're trying to trying to navigate through that is 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 very difficult I mean we're on a support group and we still attend these support groups to this day and Emily had to go through a lot of the physical stuff as well as the mental torture of all that. And as the man in this, and I'm not trying to belittle the woman's experience, the women's experience is far worse than, than anything the man goes through. But I think for me, I went into this kind of protective mode where I had to, you know, we we have Charlie, we got her ashes cremated. She's in a little teddy bear um, down in the front room now. So I rang up while Emily was going through the procedure, I rang up the, the funeral home and arranged getting our daughter that I'm never going to get to see getting her cremated I also you know a, a couple of weeks later I had to go to the courthouse to get her fetal death certificate because to us Charlie's still a person even though she was only 20 weeks old in, in the womb she's still a person it's just it was just a very very difficult time you know it was it was awful now thankfully me and Emily have each other and we've got a strong bond so we were able to to navigate it as best we could through with each other but it's even to this day, I mean, it's still difficult. We still have, have good days. We still have bad days. But it's, as yeah, we had to make a decision nobody wants. I mean, it's not a decision, you know, and that's the thing that I just kind of want to tell people today is it sounds like we had a choice, but, you know, the doctor told us once we made it, this was the only choice really for the baby. And, and it was something we made out of love. We didn't, if I could, if I could have died and that baby could have lived, I'd have been, I'd have done it you know what I mean it's it's a case of she wasn't gonna survive so yeah so that's probably on, on the whole and sorry for getting so deep on that but that's probably on the whole that's 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 two of the two or three of the major kind of issues that I've had to navigate over the last probably five or six years. Dean first of all I'm very sorry to hear your story and thank you so much for for telling our listeners this um, and secondly please don't ever feel that you need to apologize for anything you say um it's it, it's 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 a conversation that needs to be had, you know, and clearly the teamwork between you and your wife um, has helped you both through it. Um, what else has worked in during these tough times? Kind of in between all this, Dundalk FC's videographer Harry Taft passed away by suicide in 2020 as well, in July of 2020. So during that time, and especially with everything being so raw with what happened to my uncle a few years previous, I had texted a couple of a couple of fellas that I knew that were Dundalk fans and everybody tweets out, you know, when, when people die by suicide, there's the tweets and the comments and the messages. It's okay not to be okay. The hashtag goes out. But then the day or the week after they pass away, there's nothing. You know, everybody moves on and is forgotten about. So for me, it was, I want to do something. I want to do something meaningful to help people and I want to have this conversation. So it's, what we started doing is uh, we set up, Heading the, head the game is is the mental health foundation that I've set up or that, that we've set up back in Ireland. I actually wrote a poem uh, the day after Harry passed called The Floodlights. So we kind of launched with that. We got James McLean, Andy Reid, Megan Campbell, all internationals or ex-internationals on the men's and women's sides. We had supporters from, I think, five or six of the, the League of Ireland clubs that were involved uh, in it. And we, we released that and it got, I think, 250,000 uh, 250, views so that so that went really well and it kind of built up so in the aftermath of what happened to Charlie having having the lads on the committee to bounce off and have been able to be very open with them because obviously when you go through a termination of a pregnancy and we're seeing this in America now there's such a stigma attached to that 
um, and a negative stigma to it. So being able to be open with people and, and, and tell Charlie's story. It's not our story, it's Charlie's story. And we need to let people know because the more people hear it, hopefully the more they'll understand that it's not as, it's not a black and white issue. But having them that I could kind of lean on in, in that time was good. Um, and then, I mean, poor Charlie, I think before New Year's of, of 2020, my wife and I had decided we're going to do something. We're going to raise some money in her name because she's had such, in 20 weeks, she had such a profound impact on our lives. We want to make sure she has an impact on the rest of the world as well. So we set up 100K for Charlie May. Because of our second name, it all works out okay. But uh, we do 100K for Charlie May. So last year we done it. Um, we raised over $10,000 to be split between two charities. So one is it's a share group, it's called. So it's, it's a group out here in Chicago that helps people that suffer through baby loss, um, any type of baby loss, not just, not just termination, any type of baby loss. And the Fetal Health Foundation... And we just wrapped it up actually this week for this year's one. And we raised another three grand for the share group again and Felicon, which is an Irish charity that does the same. They, they help people with baby loss and just, just offer support for people. So that way that, that Charlie is, is having an effect on the world. She's, ha- you know, in her name, there's a, there's an, she's having this impact. She's having this footprint on the world and she's helping people that, you know, are going through the worst of the worst, that are losing babies, because it's such a joyous moment. And as you, as you can probably hear, uh, we've had our, our rainbow baby. She's, she's crying down there. She's like, Daddy, get off the phone. But uh, this pregnancy that we've just gone through hasn't been easy at all. It's been very difficult. And you try to tell people that, uh, you know, people say, you know, now you're parents or now you're going to be parents, but we are already parents. And being able to, being able to again, have that 100K for Charlie May, have the support of the Head in the Game group, that all helps kind of helps me get through what I'm doing. And and again, and, and not to sound pretentious or anything, but being able to help other people helps me. And anything I can do to help other people, that's something that I'm happy it just makes me feel good maybe maybe it's an ego thing I think everything in life that makes you happy is ego driven right you know so I just think the fact that I can help people and the fact that I can help people in Charlie's name I mean just that's that's everything to me her name is out there people know people know this beautiful little girl that never got a chance you know that was never you know and, and because of the hand she was dealt with her with her heart defect she was never going to have a chance it makes me very proud I'm a proud father that we're able to uh, to do this in her name Dean, you've just uh, wrapped it up beautifully and the legacy that you're creating for Charlie May, you know, you should be really, really proud of yourself and, and the power of community and communicating to other people and, and teamwork is just, um, it's extremely powerful and, and, and it's something, it's a resource that we all need to dig into when we need to because so many people are out there to help. People want to help, they just need to know that we need help and the way people know we need help is by talking, is by us expressing what is wrong and what we need. Dean, how can people support? How can people get involved with Head of the Game and 100K for Charlie May? The 100K for Charlie May, so that's going to be uh, next year. So I suppose the best thing to do is to follow me on social media. And as you say, Karen, I'm quite vocal on social media, so uh, you might want to mute me sometimes of the year, but um, Head in the Game, we've just launched our website a month ago, headinthegame.ie. So if you go on that, you'll be able to get all the resources. For a lot of countries, we've got, we've got resources there. At the moment, it's Mental Health Awareness Month as we're having this chat. So all the captains in the League of Ireland are wearing head in the game, captain's armbands. And then I think by the time this interview goes out, we'll actually have captain's armbands on sale. So if any club worldwide wants to wants to wear the head in the game armband and, and support Mental Health Month, 
that'd be great. I mean, the biggest thing we want for a head in the game is we want head in the game to be what show racism the right card is to diversity for mental health. You know, and and that's a goal of mine is to get that recognition with UEFA with FIFA, however long down the line that is. But it's 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 a discussion that needs to happen, and to be able to use football as a vessel to promote mental health again, and it's probably a vessel that people there was a stigma around mental health within football, so. To see the support that we've gotten um, has been phenomenal. And if anybody else just wants to get on board, I mean, Head in the Game, i.e., is our Twitter handle, Head in the Game.ie on Instagram, and Head in the Game uh, on Facebook. Just just give us a follow and, and get behind it and look at the great work we're doing because the, the lads, I mean, I'm doing it from Chicago. I'm the chairman of the, of the committee, but most of the work's been done on the ground by lads back in, in Ireland, and, and the work they're doing is phenomenal, you know. Dane, it's amazing and you're an absolute credit to your family. You're a credit to Coutil and I'm very proud to say that I'm from the same town as you and most importantly, you're a credit to yourself. Dane, thanks so much for your time today. I'm really sure your story will touch many people out there. Thank you, Dane. Cheers, Karen. Karen, that was Dean Arrowsmith and that was a hell of a story, wasn't it? He's, he's had some trauma in his life. He sure has, Andrew, and... Um, you know, it's a credit to Dane that he came on tonight to tell his story for, to help others. You know, Dane made it very, very clear that he, a lot of his purpose is to do things for other people, to help other people. And, and the pains he's been through is so unfortunate, it's so powerful, but it's giving him a passion for moving forwards with, with his new excitement, his, his newborn child now. Um, but it hasn't been easy for Dane and um, his story will resonate with many, many people. And, you know, I've been through my own challenges with, with, with miscarriages. And uh, I, I find there's many people out there that have experienced stuff like this, but we don't know they've experienced it. And it's not to, until somebody starts the conversation that you realise that it is common. And I'm not saying that it's common to make it okay. I'm saying that it's common to make it open, to make it open conversation, to make it open conversation that, that will create an environment that's supportive in nature that you don't have to hold back, you don't have to be quiet. If it is difficult, it's tough. Personally for me, you know, even to this day when I drive by the hospital that I experienced the, um, you know, the, the miscarriages, you know, I feel a pain in my heart. I feel a pain in my heart. And I could feel it when Dean was talking. It's still there, it's not gonna go away. And for many parents out there, it doesn't go away. We just learn to live with it. We learn to accept it. And we learn that we have to move on because, you know, thankfully, I've got children. Dean's got children. You know, we have to be there for our children and we have to just do what it takes. And there's many challenges out there, as we can see from the previous podcasts, that the challenges will come. Challenges will always come. We just need to deal with it. We need to learn to deal with it. We need to figure out what works and do it. The decision that Dean and his wife had to make I just do not know how you make that decision. But then to to make that, have the strength to make it, to, to, to deal with everything that came about from that, but then try and find some strength from that and turn it into a positive. I, and I, as, as you say, that, that doesn't mean the pain diminishes, it doesn't mean the pain goes away, but to draw on that strength, to, I remember Dean Monroe from our first episode, to draw on that strength to do something more in life, it, it's just phenomenal, isn't it? It really is. For me, it, it's a tool, it's a resource that these people are digging into that's working for them to help them through it. Their legacy they're, they're creating, they need it to get by, they need to see 
that this legacy is helping other people because by helping other people, it's helping them get through it. Well, I, I just think it's just a, such a powerful episode and, and such a great guy to talk to. That was that was Dean Arrowsmith. And for those of people who wanted to follow him, they didn't quite catch it. His Instagram is headinthegame.ie. That's headinthegame.ie. And you can go there and that, that will link to all his other social media. Just on a slightly later note, we mentioned at the start of the show, but Kieran, we've got the book launch coming up. Yes, yes. It's been, um, it's been many hurdles to jump through, but um, we're finally getting there and... Uh, as it stands, the launch is on on uh, the 20th of May in the Hill, Hill House Brasserie here in Dubai. And anybody locally around the area, please feel free to come. It's an open invite. It'll be a wonderful networking event for anyone involved in education. And um, I will be very happy to, not to see the end of it, but I'll be very happy to close this chapter. And um, it's been tough. I'd be lying if I said it was smooth sailing. And that's a whole separate podcast episode, isn't it, Kieran? So I've been Andrew Ward. This has been Let's Listen with Kieran McBreen. I'll see you soon, Kieran. Take care. All the best, Andrew. Thanks so much.